Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. As we do every week, we are speaking with accomplished and interesting members of the adaptive community. This podcast is an offshoot of our Name Tags educational program, which looks at resilience. The motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what with what happens to you. Ralph Green is joining me today. Ralph is a three-time Paralympian in alpine skiing coming from Brooklyn, New York. We'll talk about how that actually happens. And then he also is a four-time national champion, is now working for Frito-Lay in Seattle, in the Seattle area, and actually has a region. We'll talk a bit about that as well. Ralph, Welcome. Thank you for joining our Wednesday Name Tags Chat Podcast. Chris, thank you, man. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for uh, letting me be a part of it. And thanks for having me up here, man. Hey, this is awesome. I mean, you didn't, you were on the ski team. We overlapped to a certain extent, but we were never on the ski team together. And how much did your life change when you started skiing? I was not a skier growing up. I think, you know, once I took on skiing and, you know, did it full time, my life changed drastically. Um, it changed. Uh, one of the biggest changes was, you know, deciding to move to Colorado, you know, deciding to um, to take on something different. But in particular, you know, I went from living in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York, you know, to uh, to uh, Winter Park, Colorado initially. So, you know, it's a huge, huge change. You know, um, it was definitely um, a culture shock for me. Um, but, 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 you know, more so than anything, the actual dedication aspect, the dedication uh, and commitment, you know, to, 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 to a sport as a team sport, but it's an individual team sport, you know, so like all of that changed, like my mindset, and then most of all, preparing from not just being, you know, the best player or the best athlete on your block or your community or something, but training, knowing that you're training to be one of the best in the world. So it's a completely different mindset. Now you were you were a football player though, right? You, at sixteen, you were you were the starting quarterback at at boys and girls high school. Would you said when you're in New York, you just say the high school, right? Because it's the old. Is it the oldest in New York or the oldest in Brooklyn? Yeah. So I'm. Um, I, I, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I got to look on Wikipedia and find that. But yes, we do call it the high. And um, so I so I played for the basketball team um, and I was 14. I was dunking, you know, I was dunking the basketball at 14 years old. Um, and then when I came into high school, um, my my sophomore year, you know, I was going for quarterback and it was myself and, you know, it was a lot of competition, you know, shout out to Travis. He became, you know, the quarterback when I, you know, got got injured and everything like that. It's one of my great friends. And but uh, but yeah, it was so, so competitive for all sports. And um, Boys and Girls High School, 4,500 students. Um, it's the heart, you know, the pride and joy of Bed-Stuy. And, um, and, you know, that school has done so much, not just for the community, but, you know, uh, well, not just for me, but, but for the community as a whole. It's, I mean, so one, we've got the football mentality, but two, we, you talked a little bit about the culture change. I mean, you talk right now, uh, Boys and Girls High School is 72% free lunch. So, so, so you're talking about a you know a challenging challenging community economically, 
and leaving that and going to skiing. But can we talk about, first of all, how you ended up in the situation? Because you're, I mean, your life took a, took a left turn. Like you had things going on, right? You were, you were, you were dunking at 14, starting quarterback. Life's, life's pretty good. And, and what happened? Yeah. So um, most schools in New York City, just to, you know, a lot of schools are free lunch in New York City. I ate free lunch. You know, um, a lot of us that, you know, grew up in, in urban communities, the, the, the hood that I grew up in, you know, um, you know, it's, it's a different determination for especially for education and stuff. So definitely. But to kind of, you know, elaborate on my story, you know, I was, you know, an athlete and I was, you know, shot in the back. And I, and I lost my leg due to the gunshot wound um, at a very, very young age. You know, a friend and I was, you know, walking down the street and um, you know, turned around and time I turned around and the gun was out. You know, the guy shot my friend and he shot me, shot us and ran. You know, didn't rob us or nothing like that. Like, you know, to this day, um, I still never, never actually, you know, found out exactly why I was shot. Um, and, and it was definitely a point in, in my life where, you know, I, I was, I was, so I was hurt, um, not physically, but I was hurt because I felt like I would never be an athlete again. You know, I would never like, like that's, I was like, I'll never be an athlete. Like I didn't think that doing disabled sports was going to be as competitive as, you know, throwing a football off the hip 50 yards, you know, or, you know, dunking on somebody point after point, you know, after point, just coming down, just throwing it down. So I never thought that competitive sports were going to be like I never thought disabled sports were going to be that competitive. And then when I tried skiing, you know, it gave me a sense of freedom that I had been missing, you know, that, you know, you, you can walk foot over foot. And when you lose your leg, you get this freedom taken away from you, right? Like I can't do something as common as walk. But when I first clicked into a ski boot, I was able to go just as fast as everybody else on that mountain. This was my first day skiing. So that was something that stuck with me. And I was like, wow, like, you know, I'm sliding around. My first time skiing was in Jack Frost Mountains in the Poconos. And I went with this group called Aspire. Um, Patty Rossback was the uh, director of Aspire. But um, so, you know, I went with them and, you know, I'm, I'm clicking in. And again, I get this feeling and it was competitive and I couldn't do it. Like I was able to, but I couldn't, of course, I, I hadn't mastered it. So I was like, I want to do it, your first day. but I don't want to do it. Like, like I wanted to do it, but I wasn't ready to commit yet. Right. So I took a four year hiatus and then I called, um, I, I called Winter Park. I called Paul DeBello and Danny Puffa. And I was like, Hey, you guys remember me? You know, I'm the guy that you guys saw skiing and, you know, in a Pocono thing. Like, of course you remember you. I was like, um, you know, I'm interested in becoming a ski racer. And he was like, well, come to Colorado. And sure enough, like I moved to Colorado with 500 bucks to my name, um, a bag of, bag of sneakers, um, literally sneakers, like single sneakers and, um, and, and, and a bag of clothes and, and just grinded it out um, for years. There was times, as you know, being an athlete can be pretty stressful, can be pretty strenuous, um, especially if you don't have a main source of income. So there was times where I had to choose literally like, am I eating oodles and noodles or ramen noodles, or am I going to give a little bit of portion towards rent? And this is in winter part, like when I first started. So I am so thankful, you know, and, but those trials and tribulations are kind of what builds us, kind of build up that fortitude when you're on the hill, you know, to be able to come down fast, you know, it builds up that competitiveness, 
you know, when you see things and like, I can do that, like, like I can accomplish that, you know? So, so that's kind of like, that was like the transitional part right there. So you talk about, you talk about the freedom and, and so, and, and, and from what you said, it sounded like you skied one day and then took four years off and then called these guys in winter park and said, this is what I'm going to do. Is that, is that what happened? Was it one day? And then four years later, you decided you were going to ski. It was actually four days. So, so um, it was a a four day trip. Um, Yeah. But, but I'll tell you, but that first day I was following behind this guy used to be an athlete. I think he was on a team with him. His name is Danny Kosick. You know, I was following behind Danny Kosick and and the first day and i'm like whatever he can do with one leg i can do it like that was my mentality it was like whatever he can so i was following him and he's going down black diamonds i don't know no better because i ain't never skiing in my life so i'm following him i couldn't stop you know but i still saw him doing it so i was like if, if he can do it and i can visualize him doing it and kind of break it down in my own mind then i can do it so sure enough like literally like the first day I was skiing Black Diamonds, and, and then, and I, I think, you know, well, actually, I'm, I, I know the coaches from Winter Park were super, super impressed. Um, even after I moved out there, they told me stories that I didn't even know, like stories of me crashing and falling out, like down the side of the hill, you know, and stuff like that. But they were so impressed with my skiing in those few days that they were super excited for me to get out there. For a football player, you didn't mind getting hit, right? I mean, if you crashed, it's just like getting hit. But when I played football, I did the hit because I also played linebacker, you know. So so and, and we ran the and we ran the option. So I so nine times out of ten, and it's something that I teach my nephews and teach my family members and stuff too. Whether you want offense or defense, you gotta be the initiator, you know. You run somebody over if they step up. So yeah. Can you paint a little bit of a picture for these guys? So in your bio, it said that you were 5'11", 200 pounds. So that's 5'11", 200 pounds minus one leg, which is a significant amount of weight. So, so is that accurate? Or, you know, I mean, bios, these, th- these kinds of things, you never know if people get the right numbers in those. But are you 5'11", yeah. 200 pounds? Yeah, so I can't let my bio take that's that inch away from me. I'm actually six foot. <laughs> I, I am. Um, I've, I have, I have been on keto um, for the past um, three and a half, four months, and, and, and I lost 15 pounds. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm currently 195, um, but I used to be 210. You know, I'm currently 195, and yeah. So, so just imagine a person with two legs. That's about 235, 240. You know, um, as far as like, if we can compare it to somebody that you see in the gym, you know, that's somebody that's bench pressing, you know, 315 pounds, you know, six, seven times, which is what I used to do, you know, when I was, you know, bench pressing or, you know, somebody that's leg pressing, I think my max was 780 pounds, one leg. Oh, the, the, the uh, bench pressing. Yes. That's three plates, three, three plates. Yeah. On each side. Yep. And and then, you know, the leg press, you know, that's 780 pounds, you know, so. I'm pretty sure that's a one leg record at the Olympic training center from what I heard from all of the trainers, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's something you need to get ratified. That's, that's bragging rights (laughs) over some, some guys with some big legs. That's for sure. 
what was the feeling when you got on skis? You said that it was it was that feeling of freedom. Is it yeah. was it the same feeling that you had when you dunked a basketball, when you threw a football 50 yards, or was it a feeling that you knew that you were searching for? I mean, you did you just did you get the taste for it? Or did you get the whole thing when you first started? You know, it was it was a feeling to pretty much kind of get what society took away, right? You know, again, I, I compare it to walking. You know, I can't tie my left shoe or I can't go foot over foot, right? But that feeling of skiing gave me the ability, you know, to be equal, right? Because that's what I was looking for at that age. You know, I was looking for things to cope with losing a leg. So skiing kind of gave me that feeling to where, you know, nobody's going to look twice at me seeing on the hill, as opposed to like, if I'm walking, you know, down the street, you know, in, in my mind at that point, somebody might be looking at me, you know, but skiing, like, so, so when I say that freedom, it, it gave me, it gave me the ability to be equal with everybody else in society. What was that for a first time? Did that feel like the first time that you felt like you were equal after you lost your leg? I felt like the physical appearance definitely came off, um, definitely came off like, like I stood out as an outcast, as do a lot of people with disabilities, right? Like un until you actually know yourself, until you get to that point to where it's like, I really don't care what people, I really don't care like what people think if they look at me, right? Because there, there's, everybody gets to that point. And then it gets to the point to where you don't even see people looking at you. But at that age, you know, at, at 17 years old, first trying skiing or, or, or losing my leg, you know, at that young age, you know, everything is about like, you know, like, like the, 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 the perception, you know, like, like I felt like the, the perception, the way people looked at me. So, so yeah, skiing definitely came in and kind of filled that void, you know, um, or when I, when I, when, when I skied, you know, it filled that void of, of me, um, of, 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 of normality, right? I hadn't coped with being disabled. So skiing filled that void for me at that age, um, um, at that time, right? You know, it was, it was, it, it gave me a, a sense of, you know, again, a sense of like equalness at that time. How old were you when you went to Colorado? When I moved to Colorado, I was 20, um, I was 22 years old. Yeah, I was 22. So and then six I made, years. Hmm? excuse me. And so it had been six years from, from it, when it you had lost been your life. Five. Yeah, five. Okay. No, yeah. excuse me. Well, I lost my leg in 1992. So, so it had been well more than six years. And I, and I moved to Colorado in 2000. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm 43 now, you know. Um, I, I lost my leg before I turned 16. I know the ages might have, I, I know initially, I didn't want to correct you, he was like 17. I was like, I'm gonna let him slide because he's on the show. But-, uh, but Oh, no, but no, no. I mean, I had seen 16. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so you were 15 actually. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. interesting. You never know if you get all the right answers on uh, on, on, on these articles, right? <laughs> what was it what was it like to leave home I mean you were leaving home and and in one sense I guess there you know home had to be had to be difficult to a certain extent right I mean it was this random shooting but then also you had your mother right who was the one who 
who made sure you, you who kept you safe, who, who kept you out of trouble and made sure you towed the line. What was it like to yeah. leave those, those kind of two entities? Yeah, that's a great, great question. You know, I think like at that point when I finally decided to, um, to move to Colorado, I was lost. You know, I was, I was, I was lost in, 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 in life. You know, I was a junior in college. You know, I was attending Long Island University, like one of the top private schools in New York. Um, so that was good. I mean, I was working, but I didn't really know what I wanted out of life. Um, I, I, I truly didn't know. So, um, so I started deciding, like, you know, what do I want to do? Like, where do I see myself in five, 10 years from now? You know, and, and prior, to, prior to me calling, you know, uh, Colorado, um, you know, Paul DeBello and Danny Puff and those guys, prior to me calling them, you know, I, I had conversations with my family and I had conversations with my friend. And I was like, well, you know, what about if I, you know, you know uh, what about skiing, you know, and just me being the type of athlete that I was, being the type of person and, you know, always like, you know, even with academics, right? Always being like a pretty much a straight A student, you know, uh, you know, my, my, my family wasn't surprised. Family wasn't surprised. And then to know that there's not a lot of African-Americans in this sport and know that you have the chance to be one of the few African-Americans and possibly you know, one of the first African-Americans to break barriers. I also thought about that. You know, I also thought about like, wow, can I make the national team? Can I, you know, can, can, I, can I compete in games? You know, um, so all of this, the possibilities were absolutely endless. I didn't realize how much of it was a struggle. I didn't realize like, like, like what it takes, you know, but I saw the outcome, you know, and that's, I think that's why, able to have you know 15 years 15 year career you know um and, and and still be you know successful in my own right what did that mean to you like so that sort of like there's there's the the athletic part right and the athletic part is some of what you knew like that's who you were but then the social part of it you know being the first african-american the first male african-american on the Paralympic ski team, what, what would that mean? What in your mind, what, what kind of barriers were you breaking? What kind of statement were you making? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. Um, obviously, first and foremost, you know, that's a legacy. You know, that's, that's, I mean, people spend their lives trying to create a legacy, trying to, you know, live up to a hype, trying to, you know, set something to where you know, maybe if they're lucky, 50, 100, 200 years after they pass on, someone might pick up a book and read about you, you know? So, so like, and this is something that I thought about, like literally in my, in my strategy and my strategic moves was, do I have the opportunity to create a legacy? Like, so when I think about breaking a barrier, when I think about like, you know, traveling to all these countries and, you know, there being no African-American representation on the World Cup, you know, just, you know, me, you know, I, I, I know that that I have a chance to not only just be the first, but to change the narrative of the way people perceive, um, especially New Yorkers, you know, the way people perceive, like when people see movies, they see Juice, they see, you know, Minnesota Society, they see a lot of movies. And that's a perception that people in other countries have. Like, I've, like I have friends on the World Cup from other countries and we have great dialogue, you know, so, but to be able to kind of come, you know, 
be introduced or to be someone's first black friend, you know, whether they're on a US national team or whether they're on a different country, the Japanese, the Swiss, you know, whatever, to be their first black friend. Like, like this is, that's huge, you know, and, and, and to, you know, so it's like, I can, you know, to now to be able to travel anywhere in the world and know you got a friend there to where you can stay with or they can stay with you. That's what it's about. But, but also, it's also about like, you know, when I go to New York City and I see, you know, rest her soul, when I see my mother wearing my US ski team jacket or my uncles wearing my US ski team jacket or my brothers, you know, seeing my family members, they're representing with this authentic jacket because I represent the country and they're able to showcase that. They're able to be proud of. It's giving kids in the community that I grew up in that probably don't even know nothing about skiing. You know, it's giving them, showing them opportunity. Like, wow, like, I don't know what skiing is, but I see a jacket that says U.S. ski team. Or I see a jacket that says U.S. Paralympic team, right? So, so, so now you have opportunity. So we've created opportunity by way of visualizing, by way of knowing that there's somebody that looks just like you. There's somebody from your community that's doing it or that did it. So all of this plays a role. You know, my, my family members, I don't even own any more US team jackets. Like literally, I don't own none. And, and as you know, from being a former teammate, we used to get dozens of jackets, shirts, hat, you name it. I don't even own, I don't own that one. It's all given out to family members. And guess what? And they wear it like it's a freaking $40,000 chinchilla jacket. What are the questions that you get when you go back to New York? You know, the questions you get about skiing. I'd imagine I there's think, some funny ones. I think the funniest question I ever got was one day I was in my projects. Um, I, was, I, was, I was leaving my mother's apartment, walking down the block, chilling. And somebody was driving the car and they pulled up. And they was like, ain't you that, ain't you that MF who be ice skating? You know, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, I'll be skiing, but you know, close enough. Yeah, what's up? You know, so somebody, somebody knew what, like they know, like this dude come from Roosevelt Projects, you know, but like, I think the association was just like, it was like, they know that I'm doing something in sports. So like for them to say, yo, it's a dude ice skate. I think that was probably the funniest question. Cause you gotta think, then again, if you go to the corner stores in Brooklyn, my pictures is up in the corner store, like all throughout the neighborhood, you know, and it's not too many people with one leg, you know, like, like in shape like that, that's walking down the street like that. So that was probably one of the funniest. I think also, um, you know, like, like with a lot of my friends that's in New York City, you know, they also asked me about like different cultures. You know, like, what is it like being in Torino, Italy? Like, what is it like being in Salzburg, Austria? So when I, when I started getting a lot of those questions from my friends and family, I started vlogging. So I was vlogging before it got popular. Like, like if you have, I had a YouTube channel, I don't know, 15 years ago. And when I would travel, um, I would take video of it. And it started off as like Ralph Green is. It's kind of cheesy, right? But like Ralph Green is in Korea, right? Or whatever, you know, but anyway. So, so I did that for the sole purpose that my friends and family, now you can experience, you know, what it's like to be in Wilshire now. You know, now you can experience what it's like to be in these small little towns 
in these countries that I'm traveling to. So you're you're famous at home. Like when you I'm go to these corner stores, you're famous. I'm ghetto fabulous. That's that's it. you know I I I am. Let, let me. So so I have a huge huge family. I have a huge family, right? Like like one of my grandmothers had 16 kids. My other grandmother had like 14 kids. So I and so I grew up with like 28 aunts and uncles, and and then on my stepdad's side, he had a bunch of siblings. So like, so I literally grew up with over 100 first cousins, over 100 first cousins. So- Were they all in the my, area? Were they all close a, by? A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of my family was in New York City and you know, everybody migrate different places, especially like on the East Coast, right? But for the most part growing up, you know, like we were famous families. You know, my, my, my grandmother is, was, was famous in the political world. You know, like like my 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 aunt my aunt Bernice Green owns the only black-owned newspaper in New York City. You know, so 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 there's things that you know it's called Our Times Press. You know, it used to be I think it used to be like her paper and the Amsterdam, but but now it's um now it's just her paper. But anyway, nevertheless, like like having such a huge family and people with all different dynamics, whether lawyers to you know drug addicts you know whatever but still being able to get knowledge from everybody like that's the culture that's the family that i grew up with it's, it's not just you know everybody's down and crappy or everybody's up and got money no it's a huge dynamics and a good mix to where when i speak with my family members they drop in jewels you know whatever their their their, their whatever like life obstacles they have you had a platform by virtue of what you did skiing wise. I mean, socially you were changing, changing a fair amount. How much of a responsibility did you feel this summer? Like with, with George Lloyd, with, you know, with, with these kinds of things, like how, how, how much do you feel like you need to represent what's that, what that means? And obviously, I mean, you're not from Minneapolis or whatever, but, but how much do you feel like you have to, uh, you have to help provide that that understanding. Yeah. So there's an author called Nathan McCall. And one of the things that he wrote in his book called Make Me Wanna Holla, he said, the, the more you know, the more you owe. Right? Which is which is it's, it's huge. The more you know, the more you owe. So, so as far as myself, um, so there's a couple different dynamics, a couple different ways to think about this. As an athlete, you have to be real cautious about what you say and how you say it, um, just because you're influenced and you have to figure out all the facts before you stand and before you speak on something. I think this situation that had happened truly, truly, you know, it was, it was, um, it was sad. It was sad, right? And, 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 and what I can say is, while I wasn't super, super vocal on social media, in my life I was vocal and in my work I was vocal. I'm also the lead, something I don't, I don't know they talk about my work a lot, but I'm the lead of the um, Mosaic um, Employee Reference Group. So pretty much um, like for African-Americans or, you know, if other people want to join as well, that's not African-American, but it's an employee reference group when there's things going on, you know, being voices and stuff. Like, like I was the point lead in the whole Northwest. So I had the opportunity to meet with some amazing, like some amazing leadership within the organization. Uh, just to, just to make sure that people understood, you know, like the day in the life of an African-American, 
um, or especially being from New York City or the day in the life of, you know, someone that's used to um, different situations that the world is just finding out about, you know, things that happen, people are exposed. So like being the lead and being able to have these courageous conversations, you know, within a huge organization and within my family, and then having these conversations with society, you know, it's, it's, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was huge. I, I took a huge responsibility as far as like being able to communicate feelings um, um, of not just fellow employees, but being able to communicate feelings from, from my friends, you know, my, my friends that I talk to every day. Like we, we call it chop it up, like, and that's talking. We chop it up all the time. Like, like, like we talk all the time about everything. So, you know, being, again, being, you know, this athlete, you know, initially as you're coming up before you get out of sports, you have to be very, very cautious about what you say. But then, you know, after you kind of get out of sports, you know, you can kind of learn like, you know, what's expected of you. You know, there was times where I probably wouldn't have said anything, you know, like, like I probably wouldn't. I would have had conversations with my family. I would have had conversations with my close friends. And, and, and I wouldn't have talked about it on a broad scale because so many people don't know what it's like to be in certain situations. And I don't want to say anything that could deter people from, you know, um, like, like deter people from, you know, uh, liking cops or not liking cops, like, you know, or, you know, understanding different situations. I can only speak about my own, but I want to make sure that part of my leadership skills is still being able to, um, to talk about experiences. Talk about experiences. And so where where do you come down on on sort of like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and what needs to be done as far as opportunities and 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 in how we see the world, right? I mean, you're you're in a different category in too many ways, right? You know, I mean, being an African American, but then also being an African American with one leg, and you're like, okay, you know, see me for who I am, you know, and it's like. It, it, it can be a hard thing, right? So what's what's yeah. your message with regard to like Black Lives Matter? Because So it's a great segue. Thank you, by the way. And I do appreciate it. And, and, I'm, and I'm willing to talk about it. Like, I don't really know too much about the actual, I, I think when people say Black Lives Matter, you got two things. You have the mindset, but then you have the actual group and you have like the organization. You know, um, I think for myself, um, like Black Lives Men Matter, you know, like, like, like it's been like the things that go on in the, in the community that I grew up in, um, where, you know, um, where there's a lot of shootings, where there's a lot of stabbings, where there's a lot of death, like Black Lives Men Matter. And, and I've been talking about that from when I was 17 years old. I mean, I've done over a hundred national speaking engagements. And my first one was testifying before Congress about gun control for Surgeon General Elders um, when I was 17 years old. Then my second one was opening speaker for Attorney General Janet Reno when I was 18 years old. Like so, so, so these are things that you know I can legitimately say like like it been matter to me. Like, like I've been talking about these subjects. I've been going down that road that's you know promoting the awareness of youth violence. You know that's promoting the awareness of teen violence. You know that's promoting the awareness of violence in general. So I think my perspective might be a little bit different. However, I do respect people's opinions that, that I think we should have the ability to be able to voice our opinions fearlessly. You know, whether, you know, whether someone is with one organization 
or a not, you know, or not. And, and I think like, if it's one thing that we learn, it's one thing that we see in, is in today's world, this technological world, when things do happen, now it can get spread to the masses. Now the masses can see, you know, like senseful, you know, senseless killings. Now, now the masses can see like, you know, things that's happening in our communities, that's, that's not right. You know what I'm saying? No, I think, I think so. So in some ways, after getting shot, you, you were put into a position of, 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 of being, being a spokesperson in a lot of ways and helping to, as a young kid, helping to, to understand the situation. But it sounds like also when you decided to go ski, that you decided that you wanted to get, to earn that position is some of what it, you know, to, to, to be able to affect a change, to be able to change the way that the people in your neighborhood look at themselves. Uh, was that a conscious decision when you decided I'm, I'm picking up and I'm moving to Fraser, Colorado? I think I don't, well, I, I would like for you to reflect on your question because I know, like, I would, I would say no, because I, I can't control the way people look at themselves, right? But right. but what I can control is I can show them that 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 there is a lot to do, you know. That I, I can show because there's you know seven billion people, you know, there's uh, seven billion people on Earth. At that point, there was like twelve million people living in New York City, right? So I I, I don't want to generalize, you know. But what I can say is like for my friends that I grew up with, I definitely wanted to show them like there's different stuff that we can do, and not only that, we can do something extremely not in the normal right so, so so i think like you know hopefully that answered like that part of the question and and what was the first part of the question that you asked me uh the first part, well so when you were a kid you kind of got thrust into this, right. into this exactly. position yes. of yes. being a yes. spokesperson right so so when i was a kid before i was shot um my mother who was also very active in the community um with her and her organizations, you know, they would make sure like, if you was the son of, of, of one of these ladies right here, you got your stuff together too. You know what I'm saying? So, so like whatever they, like, like, like literally, so I was raised like being a Cub Scout, you know, I was raised like, you know, being a gleaner, you know, I was raised like a certain way that was passed on from my grandmother to my mother, you know, or my father, like, you know, we're, we're raised a certain way to where the expectation of you is to be a gentleman. The expectation of you is to do good in school. The expectation of you is to speak and be articulate and stuff like that. So I, I don't think being shot changed it. I think having one leg changed it. The actual physical appearance changed it, not the act itself. The physical appearance changed it simply because um, it's not the normal physical appearance you know so it's like i have one leg so if i say something to 10 people to, if i say something to 10 kids in my neighborhood seven might listen but if somebody with two legs say something to 10 kids in my neighborhood three might listen they might listen to me more because of the perception of me having one leg and them knowing that i went through something so i think that's like you know that's, that's kind of like the one of the biggest differences is is not the act itself but the physical appearance. 
That makes a lot of sense. So is your upbringing, your upbringing from your grandmother, from your mother, is that what allowed you to have the courage to make this crazy decision? Because I mean, this is a like, I mean, there's a left turn when you lost your leg. But then there's another left turn to say, I've been skiing for four days. And I'm going to move to Colorado with a bag of sneakers and a bag of clothes and and become the best in the world or, or, or go on that path to be the best in the world. Was it the upbringing from your mother and your grandmother that allowed you to make that kind of a decision? Yeah. So 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 I would definitely say that, like, you know, while I was lost during that period and I kind of figured out like what I wanted to do. It was it was having them and being able to converse with them, knowing that I had the skills to do it, right? Because because we we can doubt ourselves, like do I have the skills to do this? Do I have the skills to manage this much amount of money? Do I have the skills to you know do this on the ski slopes? But my 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 family was coaching me on as I was growing. My family was coaching me on you know um, after I came out of the hospital, like as I was a kid you know, growing up playing football, like my family always coached me on, right? So, so, so yes, my upbringing had a lot to do with installing these qualities in me to know that I can do it. Like I had those qualities in me when I was 10 years old, when I was lying about my age to play with 12 and 13 year olds, you know, like, like literally, like I was 10 and, and, but you know, I, I, I always, like, they always prepared me to, 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 to be the best at whatever you are. So, like, literally, I was 10, and, and I lied and said I was 12, and then the 12-year-old team got cut, so we had to pay against 13-year-olds. So, so, and this is a fact, so, so here it is, and, and which was, I didn't realize at the time, but that was such a huge difference because I got caught. You know, they was like, you're not 13 years old. I got caught the next year. So I went from 10 playing with 13-year-olds to 11 playing with 11-year-olds. It was over. It was over. What you going to do? Like, I just finished playing against people two years older than me. You really think you're going to stop me? Like, and those are some of the things that, you know, those small little decisions that we make can ultimately influence the overall mindset. Do you... Do you enjoy the struggle of it? I mean, so you're talking about, you know, prepare to be great, but also put yourself in difficult situations, go up against the best. Do you enjoy that struggle? No, 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 no. Really? but I enjoy the journey, okay. but I enjoy the journey. I, 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 I do not enjoy the struggle. Like, like I did not like enjoy you know, not when, when the team's going out for sushi and me not being able to afford sushi. So I got to lie and say my stomach hurt, you know, like because I couldn't go out to dinner. Like I do not enjoy that. But when I look back in retrospect and I look at the whole journey, that is priceless because the lessons that we learn, because the, you know, like, like everything that we get out of catapulting is the same tools, the same skills that we use once we, you know, get into different professions and stuff like that. For the next so, step. Yeah, for, for the next step. What was what was it like? I mean, so you you made this decision, got these 
you know, bag of clothes, bag of sneakers, you arrive at Winter Park. I mean, you could, it sounded like, I mean, you skied some, some black diamonds at Jack Frost. Black diamonds at Winter Park are a little bit different than the black diamonds at, yeah. at Jack Frost, right? So yeah. you weren't really prepared. What was, what was that? What were those first few days like? I mean, did you think I am crazy? What was I thinking? Or you're like, this is it. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. So there was two things. Um, so initially moving to Colorado, I, I, um, there's another author called Annie Dillard. And she talks about a moment of being, a moment of being, right? And that moment of being is like, when you know who you are, like when it all comes together. So my second day in Colorado, I actually had that moment of being, right? Like I, 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 I knew what I wanted to do. Um, but when I got on the slopes, when, it, when I moved out there in October, by the time I started skiing, there was no just skiing down Black Diamond. Like it took me an hour to make it down the hill, literally an hour. <laughs> and, and, and the coaches, now mind you, some of these are new coaches, right? So they're like, we thought, you, like they was telling us that, you know, you was this fearless guy who was just, and I'm like, I, I, I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying. So, 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 so it was definitely rough, right? Cause it took a long time and I just kept getting up falling, getting up falling, getting up falling. Um, there's two things I learned quick. Um, it's not how you fall, it's how you get up, right? You know, and that's something, especially, you know, we, we take that on as ski races, but I also learned quick that, um, that I am going to have to put in more work than every single person that's doing this. Like, like immediately, like I immediately went into that mode. Like I'm gonna have to work harder. I'm gonna have to train harder. I'm gonna have to ski more. You know, I'm, I'm gonna have to figure out a way to be more effective, to be a, a better athlete in, in this new sport than everybody else. And this is including everybody that was on the World Cup who used to see to come to Winter Park and train. So what I did, I, I, set, I set a goal. You know, I, I started being, Winter Park used to have a gym right at the base of the ski area. I started going to the gym five o'clock in the morning to spin, to, to, to lift. And then, I, and then for three years straight, I tried to be the first person on a chair every single day. I tried to be the first person on a chair and for two of those years, I wanted to be one of the last people off the hill. I knew realistically I wasn't going to be the last person on the hill, but I wanted to be one of the last. So I skied. Like I skied, skied, skied. I skied so much. And then when I started traveling, like I started getting those miles in. Because because when you when you first start and everybody's telling you, well, you know, um, it's going to take you a long time. You don't have the miles. You don't have the miles. Well, I was like, I got to get my miles in. You know, so then when I was able to travel, skiing in different conditions and everything and then it took one year it was 2003 2004 and i spent the whole summer george uh, george was my roommate george sensonians was my roommate and i spent the whole summer and i looked at video every single day like every day all summer so i would look at world cup winning runs i would look at herman meyer i would look at darren rawls i would look at you know a lot of female skis anya pearson yannicka kostelich and I would envision them skiing with one leg. So one time I would just look at their ankles and then I would just look at their arms and then I would just look at their, and then, and this was before I started studying video of Paralympic skiers. So I would look at these able-bodied skiers and I would literally imagine them skiing one leg and I'd be like, okay, 
that's how you create the pressure on there, like a visual learner. And then I came out the next year and we had two super Gs. Remember this, like it was yesterday. We had two super Gs and I, and I was nobody. I wasn't even ranked. I, I wasn't, you know, and all of the top people was there at these super Gs. Every single one of them, Michael Milton, um, um, the girl, um, not girl, uh, girl, uh, the other, uh, it was a, uh, a mono skier from Germany who like, oh, like everybody was there. So the points was absolutely off the hook. I didn't even know about points, but I won both the races. So I went from nobody to winning two Super Gs and being ranked third in the world overnight. Overnight. This was my fourth year. It's my fourth year of skiing. My first year, the year before I made the team. I went from nobody. And, that they, and then the, the Winter Park Open, or they used to call it the, uh, the um, I don't know, Columbia Crest Cup. Columbia Crest Cup. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I won both Super Gs. And that immediately put me on a World Cup to start racing Super G. And then I made, eventually made the national team. But I went in, ranked third in the world in the Super G. That was, like, I, that was unbelievable. Did that surprise you? You'd been preparing for it, but did it surprise you? Yes. It surprised me because it, it be, yeah, no, it's, you laugh, but I'm, I'm serious. Like, like it surprised me because <laughs> as much as I prepared for it, like I still wasn't sure that I was ready for that talent. Cause again, these like people who I'm naming won four gold medals in the Paralympics. You know, these guys were high hopefuls and here it is, they come in a winter park to a Noram and you know, they heard of me, but they don't know me. And then I came out and I won back to back I think the surprising part was because at that point, I didn't really know about points. I didn't know like how rankings went and none of that. Like I was just, my mom was just a ski, you know, like I was just, they just started letting me race at a lot of competitions. So that was the difference right there, you know. What was the reaction from them? I mean, talk about Milton, Michael Milton from Australia, one of the best one-legged skiers ever in the history of the sport and skied, skied in a lot of able-bodied races. I mean, he would go and, and train in Europe and race a lot of able-bodied races, which are difficult conditions and great competition. And what did, did you get a reaction from him or from anybody like him or? The first night when I beat Michael Milton um, in that particular race, he came to my house and played me in chess. I kid you not. Now, the man had never spoke to me. You know, we didn't, like, I didn't really know him. Like, I would hear his name and everything like that. And I was living in this little part of Fraser called Meadow Ridge. And he, that night, because in his mind, he had to, and I realize it now, like, he's like, I gotta, like, I gotta get to know, like, like who, who are you? You know, so we was like talking after the race and everything. And then he's like, hey, what are you, you know, what are you doing later? So then he literally came over. I can't remember who won. Um, I can't remember who won that chess game, but he came over. And I think it was more so just to kind of like dissect me in my, like, like in my mind, like how the heck did you just beat me? You know, and I, and I beat him at like two temps, you know? So it was like, but, but, cool. but, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's like, who are you? So yeah, he came to my house that night, um, that, that, that the night of the first Super G played chess. And then I came out the next day and won again. Did that start the trajectory, the, the upward trajectory, or did, did you have some difficulty after that as well? Well, there's difficulty every race. Every, um, um, I, I think it was, 
I think it was a little bit of a little bit of both. Like, like it definitely started the upward trajectory. Let me just say that. Let me just say that. Um, but so many things changed, like in, in that year, ski size, right? We went from a 155 slalom to a 165. So, you know, you, you learn how to ski slalom, which I actually learned pretty, pretty quick. That probably was the quickest event. But now it's like a different dynamic. And again, I was probably bigger than everybody on the World Cup, you know, at, at that point, like more solid and not even like I didn't understand the wood of a ski then. Like I didn't understand like a certain wood, like skis are meant to have two, you know, two legs on them. So when you got all of this weight on this ski, like I didn't, like, I didn't know, like if I would have knew now what I knew then, it, it, you know, I probably would have been a lot faster. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I, I think it, I don't know, like, like it was just, it kind of started, but at the same time, it was like, Mm, it was it was just rougher, you know, because because everything changed with, within the ski world, like all of the rules changed and everything too. So 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 it was a lot going on. So you made the team the next year, and yes. and and after winning this race and beating some of these big guys, are you thinking, okay, I'm I'm on my way? And if you were thinking you were on your way, where were you on your way? Where were you going? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely was, I was on cloud nine, you know, it, it ain't no way in the world that you was going to tell me that I was, that I was going to be, you know, I was training to be like the most decorated skier period, you know, like a lot of my teammates at the time, like when I made the team super, super decorated. Um, and so definitely like the objective is not just to be number one in the country, but to be number one in the world, you know? So, uh, so I, I definitely was thinking that, you know, and then going into the World Cups, you know, like not knowing anyone, you, you know, still being ranked top five in slalom, you know, so it wasn't just Super G, like I was ranked top five in the world in slalom. And, and again, this was when, you know, it, which I, I know, you know, but a lot of people don't know, this is when the year I made the team, it went from just racing against one leggers to now you race against everybody that stand with different factors. So it takes a little while to get to get everything rolling. So so when I was top five in slalom, I was top five. Everybody's standing, not just one legged, you know. So this was like, you know, it was, you know, when I was super G, when I made the team that year and I was third in super G, I was third in super G out of everybody, not just one legged. So it was it was it was a big, big difference because now, you know, you, you go from just racing against one legged, which is what I did for that four years. So now you're racing against everybody. If you're missing three fingers, you know, if you ski with a prosthetic leg and you got it below the knee, you got cerebral palsy and that, like whatever. So that definitely changed. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it, it's a bigger demographic, right? It's more competition as a result of more classes being involved. What, so you were talking about most decorated. Yeah. What, what what did that look like? Because you got into you got into three Paralympics, right? Mm -hmm. And and what were the what were the expectations going? Because you had you were ranked well, as you said, yeah. as you're going into the games. Yeah, I think like especially especially in Super G, you know, in the Paralympic Super G, I still look at this video to 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 the uh, day in the uh, Torino Super G. I was in the top seat, you know. I think I was the last person in the top seat to go. And um, I think with like six gates left, I was winning the race by like 1.3 seconds and, and I crashed. 
you know, uh, yeah, so, so I crashed. Um, and then also um, um, I cried. I, I was just in big events. You know, it was just hard to hold it, like hard to hold it together. Like if you pushing it, especially if you got one leg, you know, um, you, you have to really, really push it. I, I don't know how, like I never got any major injuries. Every single other person that I skied against with one leg got major injuries, um, not because of lack of skill, but you, it, you really have to push it to the point where either I'm going to crush this or I'm prepared to go through this B-netting, you know? Um, and so, and, and that's the reality. And, and, and not just for one-leggers, you know, for everybody, right? Everybody has to push it that way. But I think at that point where we were still trying to figure out, figure out the factor system, figure out how do we get it to be as best as possible with all of these different disabilities skiing against each other, we really, really had to push it. So, and, and that was kind of just my story, like, you know, like trying to really, really push it. And then you get discouraged, you know, like, and again, we're talking big competitions, right? Then you get discouraged. So it's sure. like, well, now I just want to finish, <laughs> you know, like, like I got to finish a race, you know? So, so yeah, it was, it was, I've had a couple of those episodes where I was doing really, really good as a lot of people, you know, and just, and, and just couldn't hang on, you know, just really, really could not hang on no matter how good a shape I was in. Is, is there, is there the regret part of it? Do you still feel like you, you achieved what you were looking to achieve? Absolutely. I feel like I've achieved so much more than I could ever imagine um, for so many different reasons, right? Um, number, number one, not to sound cheesy, but because I have so many amazing friends, I've made some great relationships. I had some, like, I've had some amazing sponsors um, eventually throughout my career. You know, I've networked, like I became kind of like a mentor in the ski world of like how to, you know, how to get sponsors, how to write letters, you know? So I feel like in some ways I kind of, you know, help change the game, you know, especially with, you know, one of my first big sponsors, um, Cox Communications, with, you know, uh, when I was sponsored by them, you know, the relationship that Joe and I had, we were kind of like the first ones to have a relationship like that. Like there was people that were sponsored before me, but for me to be able to like, not just ski with, you know, an emblem on my head, but to be able to negotiate and say, well, you know what, uh, why don't we work something out in the summertime as well to where I can still generate some more capital. Like that wasn't happening you know, and then bringing people on board, you know, bringing, uh, you know, my teammates on board and connecting them with different sponsors. So when I think about like the level of achievement, and then let alone, you know, now, like, you know, you know, attaining and finishing my college degree, attaining an MBA, you know, working for a Fortune 500 company, um, I, I would not change it. Like, like, I would not change it because one slight change of my past probably could have altered my whole future. So I think that my steps was absolutely intact, even the struggles, you know, even the crashes, you know, even, you know, different types of relationships that I've had with, you know, like whether I don't want to listen to a coach or I want to listen to that, you know, whatever. Like, like, I think all of it played a role, you know, even in not accomplishing, like not being a gold medalist in the Olympics. That's awesome. Like I take my hat off people that can still have the guts to do that. People that can like, keep, you know, bring it all together and make it happen. Like I, I salute, I salute you, you know, you're, you're, you are one of those people that I'm talking about that that's able to bring it together, able to make it happen, you know? So it's like, but like for me, like, 
when, when I look at my whole story, like, like when I look at everything that I've accomplished, you know, I would not change nothing in the world, nothing. When you went into it, because you were talking about the athletic side appealed to you, the social side appealed to you being the first African-American male Paralympic uh, skier, um, U.S. Paralympic skier. I don't know if it's if there were any other elsewhere, or if you were the actual first. But then also talking about the business side of of what you're doing, because it's it's not you weren't just wearing one hat, right? I mean, so there's the, yeah. the athletic, there's the social, there's the business, there's there's uh, there's the educational side. I mean, you got you got a lot of stuff out of the sport. Did you anticipate that? when you started could you have imagined it i imagined this when i was at a young age you know i just didn't know what sport it was going to come with you know what i'm saying like 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 i, I knew for a fact that i was going to reach an elite level in some sport there's no doubt about it I, I i knew as a fact that i was going to go to college i knew that i was going to graduate college and i knew that i was going to be a leader within the community. I didn't know it was going to be skiing. I didn't know skiing was going to be that, you know, I didn't know skiing was going to take me there. Like I had absolutely no idea. So, you know, and I think this kind of goes back to, you know, a question from earlier about, you know, what's installed in me, what's expected of me, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, and then having that opportunity, you know, it clicked, you know, I grasped one of the moments out of reality, out of the sky, out of the air that I was blessed with and I acted on it. And that's the difference. That small little moment, had, had I would have said, when Patty Rossback asked me, do you want to go skiing? Had I would have said no, that would have been a magical moment that I would have let slide, which happens. We let magical moments slide all the time. But that one in particular, if I would have said, no, I don't want to go skiing, that one time when she asked me, like, I would not be in this reality that I'm in now. Do I think it would have been comparable? Yeah, but I wouldn't have been in this reality. How do you know when those magical moments are coming? How do you recognize those magical moments? That's the key to it. You recognize those when you, when you reflect, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it just takes a pattern. Like whenever you think about amazing things that you've done, like if you sit down right now, you think about like your last gold medal that you won. When you crossed the finish line, first thing you did was reflecting. You thought about the run. You thought about every single thing that you did right. It's the same thing. When we have those magical moments, you know, we reflect like, like, man, I just had this amazing thing happen. And then you start thinking about how it transpired. Like, like what was the key? So I, I think that's a lot of self-reflection. Like we got to know ourselves. We got to know our think patterns, you know, so we, so we are able and equipped to reflect on these small moments that ultimately change the future. Yeah. And that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage to reflect on those, to be open. It's much easier for, for a lot of us to say no than it is to say yes. So you got your education, undergrad, graduated cum laude, uh, MBA, and then and then now, how did you end up getting your getting your job? So so a year after I retired, I kind of took a year, kind of just doing nothing, right? Just you know decompressing from 15 years of skiing, and I was sending out so many job applications, like I must have sent out like 
probably probably 75 to 100 job applications. And and I, I would never really hear anything back, you know? And I, I had the opportunity to do a couple of interviews and I had just graduated. So I had the opportunity to do a couple of interviews. Things didn't go right. And I was willing to do a job for probably like half the amount of money, you know, half my salary now, right? Like I was just willing to do like anything, right? So next thing you know, um, you know, I created a LinkedIn account, you know, um, and, and, and I had a, um, talent, a talent acquisition manager um, reach out to me. Um, I, I, I brought a motorcycle and I was like, I want to take my motorcycle on like a cross country trip. So I rode to Vegas a couple days and I rode to LA. But anyway, while I was in Vegas, true story, the first night I was going to go out and have a good time. And something was like, just stay in, like, just relax. You just, you know, you took two days to get to Vegas. I camped out one night. And sure enough, like seven o'clock in the morning, um, which would have been eight o'clock Colorado time, uh, I got a call from this talent acquisition manager, and um, she told me about an opportunity. Um, and I was, I was like, uh, I was like, okay, sure. I didn't really think too much of it, right? And then we stayed in contact. And then you know, months later, um, um, I wound up, you know, getting a sales opportunity, like a sales specialist, a specific sales role and, and managing um, like 20 accounts, right? So I did that and, and this is so, when- Hold on, step back a, a second here. So, so this woman called you and, and was she from, cause you're with Frito-Lay now or, yeah. or PepsiCo. Is that, was she with them? Is that who yeah. called you? Yeah, okay. she was based out of Chicago. She, she was she was talent acquisition manager um, um, based out of Chicago and, um, you know, again, reached out and um, and yeah, so you know, I didn't know. I, I was like, okay. So next, you know, again, we were in contact back and forth, back and forth. And then, um, you know, we had one interview set up. I had an interview in Denver. And again, I'm going there with one leg. And, and you know, this is like, in order to be a manager, you got to go through everything that the frontline team go through. So I, I, my first day, I had a suit and everything as I'm going in to do what they call like a, a ride along. You know, so I'm pulling carts and these guys, oh my goodness, this guy, one leg is like pulling carts with like hard bottom shoes on. So they even helped hype me up to like one of the directors. So then I had an interview with him and I had an interview with another director and, um, and, 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 and the company was creating this special format where they had specialists, sales specialists, where you got a certain geography and um, service specialists. So, um, so, they, so, so they hired me as like a designate kind of see, you know, show me the robe, see if I like it, you know, and everything like that. So I did that, you know, busted out. And then I started uh, managing sales. I started helping out. Then I started being more involved with the company, you know, different employee reference groups, you know, putting together, you know, food drives and just doing more than like what my job expected. And then I was able to kind of, you know, move into different positions. And, and now I'm on a customer team, but it's not just like, hey, I can go out here and sell I have a customer. It's about the overall, like, this is my impression. This is my, um, this, this is my stamp on the business where it's not just about going out selling, but it's about here's what I'm bringing, the value that I'm bringing to the company with a lot of external stuff that I'm doing as well. You know, even like being on the board of adaptive spirit, you know? No, it's, I mean, you've done, you've done a tremendous amount and are connected with a whole bunch of people when you did that ride along. So you're right along. So this is, this is the delivery truck, right? I mean, this is the big, the big truck where you open up the open up the sides, right? And and get all this stuff and get the pallets of stuff out there and yeah. and with the dollies. And did you 
look at that and go, there's an opportunity for me here. I mean, the, the whole idea of like, they're looking at this guy with one leg. And did you think, yeah, you might be seeing me with one leg, but let me, let me show you something that, that really helped you get the job. Is that, was that what was going through your mind? So, so I think there was a couple of things first. And I actually asked my hiring boss about this. And, you know, you know, like eventually, like it was one of, it was like one of my anniversaries, one of my work anniversaries, I shot him a text and I was like, you know, just, you know, thank you. I still appreciate you giving me the opportunity to work for the company. And he was like, I didn't give you anything. You earned it. He, he said, that was a no brainer. So like to hear that, you know, it was, he saw my, uh, my uh, leadership and he knew like, you know, like, and I think one of the things that in all actuality, one of the things that I said in my interview, when I'm going to give anybody a pointer, you know, you take it how you want to take it. People can, they listeners or not. So, so one of the things that I did was um, I talked about my travel experience, but I also talked about like, like I'm not working to travel. You know, I didn't travel to 32 countries already. So you don't have to worry about me working just to go on a vacation to Italy or working to go to Switzerland or working to go wherever. I'd been there and I'd done that. Like I'm ready to work, work. I'm ready to enter the workforce and I'm ready to be one of the best employees that I could be. But my tip to anybody that's listening that's either going through something similar or looking for a job or something is um, don't forget to ask for the job. Don't forget. Like so many people actually forget. Like you prepare yourself in the interview. You prepare yourself to have these conversations. And then when you're in the elevator or if you're in the interview, do you actually ask for the job? And I think that that's kind of one of the things that I did, which I think helped me as well, not just my skill and willingness to, you know, help out, um, but but I asked for the job, you know, I said, hey, you know, uh, you know, as I was leaving, you know, hey, you know, you have anything to say? And I was like, I would love the job. Like, I would love, you know, um, if you hired me, because here's why, here's what I think I can, the value I think I can bring to the company. So I think that's like a good point. I know it's a little off subject, but I still like to tell people like, you know, when given the opportunities, don't forget to ask for the job. Well, that's what you do in your job right now as well, right? I mean, being on the sales side of things, you continually ask for the job, right? Ask for your for the business, like sell our stuff, man. <laughs> I mean, it, that's, that's a part of what you're doing, isn't it? I mean, that's a daily yeah. thing with you and with your team, the extension. Let's get you out of here on, on this one. What you, you've, you've been on a crazy, amazing journey that, that has been, looks like it's been really fulfilling. What's, what's next? You know I mean? You've got to have something on the horizon. What are you, what are you looking at? Yeah. So there's, so there's a couple of amazing things. One of the biggest parts of this journey that I'm super, super excited about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm engaged. You know, I have an amazing fiance who, uh, who, who, who she's, she's something else. You know, she, she, she keeps me on the straight and narrow, you know, and she ain't afraid to tell me like how it is. So, you know, I can't wait until the day, you know, like when we're able to have our friends, our families and have an amazing wedding and stuff like that, you know? So, so that's definitely first and foremost, you know, kind of changing priorities and understanding, like, especially as an athlete or even in this business, you know, a lot of things is about you. So to be able to experience and share time and feelings and emotions and learn empathy, you know, and stuff like that, and, you know, be intimate and stuff like that's kind of like, I'm able to do things that I couldn't do, you know, as, as an athlete, like, I didn't have time. I didn't have no time to have like a real 
relationship. I had no time to kind of, you know, live with somebody. I had no, you know, so many different things. So that's kind of what it is about now, you know, like, so, so definitely, you know, um, I, I would probably say Facebook is probably, you know, we got Facebook and we got Twitter, you know, um, Ralph Green on Facebook and, you know, BK Ski Man on Twitter, you know, um, Ski Man. So, so yeah, you know, those social media platforms, you know, because um, I, I do like sharing experiences and stuff like that as well. And then also, you know, um, I'm, 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 I mentioned Adaptive Spirit. So yeah. like, you know, there's cool stuff on Adaptive Spirit's website as well. So you kind of see like what I'm into and what the board is into and stuff. Yeah, and Adaptive Spirit is, is the big fundraising event for the Adaptive Ski Team each year with the cable industry. Uh, has, has allowed the team to continue to progress in the athletes and help support the athletes. And I know that your, your relationship with Joe Rooney was, was a really special relationship that, that really, that was symbiotic. It helped, it helped both of you and it helped the company. And, and that's the, that's the real goal in all of this. So uh, Ralph, thanks. Thanks a ton for joining us, for taking time out of your day to join us on the name tags chat podcast. Really appreciate it. Chris, salute, my man. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. Sparks, thanks for taking care of things. I appreciate you guys. Well, you're welcome. And thank you to all of you for listening. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the whole thing, you can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook and you can listen to the whole thing. We actually have all of our archive of all of the Name Tags Chat podcasts that we've done. Ralph's podcast will be turned into an actual podcast and you can find it on all the places you find podcasts, right? So Spotify and Apple and Google and Pandora, et cetera, et cetera. So look for the name tags chat podcast. If you like what we're doing, please follow us, please like us, please subscribe to the podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again next week, Ralph. Keep doing what you're doing, man, and uh, look forward to catching up with you on the hill sometime. Yes. Thanks, Chris. Later, man.